And come to Proverbs chapter 13. We'll read verses 1 through 5. Lend your attention. This is God's word. A wise son hears his father's instruction, but a scoffer does not listen to rebuke. From the fruit of his mouth, a man eats what is good, but the desire of the treacherous is for violence. Whoever guards his mouth preserves his life. He who opens wide his lips comes to ruin. The soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing, while the soul of the diligent is richly supplied. The righteous hates falsehood, but the wicked brings shame and disgrace. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word. Join me in prayer as we ask God's blessing. Father, you are the maker of heaven and earth. You spoke and all things came to be. Uh, for by the word of your power in the space of six days, you made all things. And this very good. And so now as we sit to receive of your word, O oh Lord, attend it with the spirit of power that uh, you might uh, bring forth life, continue to nurture the life that you've caused to come forth by the wonderful working of the Spirit and the Word and the exercise of Christ's rule and grace. We pray that you would posture us in humility to receive with meekness the implanted Word which is able to save our souls, that you might wash us with the Word as Christ continues to showcase himself as the faithful husband uh, who does good to his bride, the church, as he sanctifies us to present us pure and spotless on the day of his return. So do these things, O Lord, for we are your workmanship. We are your people, the sheep of your pasture. Uh, we are utterly dependent, O Lord. Help us to attend uh, with uh, ready hearts and ready minds uh, to this, your holy word. For we ask in Christ's name, amen. Continuing on in the Ten Commandments. Uh, the section we're in in the Westminster Shorter Catechism. You can find the relevant questions on page 973. As we come to the seventh commandment, we'll take a look particularly at questions 71 and 72, beginning several Sundays, meditating, wrestling with the seventh commandment. But first, uh, God's word is, comes to us in Exodus chapter 20, verse 14. You shall not commit adultery. Now, thus ends God's word. And then question 71 in the Westminster Shorter asks, what is required in the seventh commandment? The seventh commandment requireth the preservation of our own and our neighbor's chastity in heart, speech, and behavior. And then question 72, what is forbidden in the seventh commandment? The seventh commandment forbiddeth all unchaste thoughts, words, and actions. The 
there's a scene in the novel Dracula that is uh, rather striking uh, for several reasons. One of the characters, uh, Fair Lucy, has been infected by Dracula, and she has joined his rather perverse harem in a graveyard. Uh, Lucy's men, uh, brave, good, courageous men who love Lucy, um, seek her to free her from uh, this terrible curse, and they encounter her in this graveyard on an awful night. And as they see her for the first time in this state, each of them, to a man, are struck by the change in her. The description is one of the striking features that draws attention to her mouth and to her eyes and the loss of innocence, that chaste beauty that they had all loved and praised and adored in her. And the word that they use to describe her now in this dreadful condition is wanton. Her wanton mouth, her wanton eyes. It's a striking scene for several reasons. Uh, The change itself is striking from something light and beautiful, whose beauty is enmeshed in, in goodness and in purity, to something interestingly not ugly per se. Something still attractive, but whose attractive power trades in a darkness and a terrible power. That in and of itself is rather striking. But more striking still, and I trust that you felt this, is how foreign those words feel to us, just in general. You might have protested yourself, like, how dare those men call her wanton? Where do they get off? Where does this fallen woman tradition that you see in the 19th century get off? How dare they make a moral assessment of her with reference to her sexual activity? We're all products of the same age, so I'm guessing that that wasn't far from your hearts and your minds. It's worth noting that it isn't just concerning women that the 19th century makes its protestation against wantonness and for chastity. You see the same thing playing out in Tolstoy, where the Kurigan family in War and Peace with the beauty of Helen, the beauty of uh, Anatole is much closer to the terrible, dark, attractive power that Lucy has. And the goodness of Prince Andre and him being a true man, a good man, places those two figures in stark contrast. So it's not something that's just restricted to an evaluation of females in that time and place. But we have to admit, right, the idea of chastity as a good is strange to us. The idea of wantonness as an ill is strange to us, that there's beauty in chastity, that there's a dark, attractive power bordering on ugly, but not fully tipping over into ugly in wantonness. That's strange to us, is it not? We've remarked upon the excellencies of our Lord Jesus Christ in this very regard, haven't we? The purity of his heart 
as that king. The one who had the vast pleasures of the world set before him, but who in faithfulness to his father maintained the life of righteousness, goodness, purity, and truth. We begin to feel rather sheepish as we evaluate the state of our own hearts in this regard in the light of his perfect purity. That he was near unto fallen women and viewed them in purity. That he touched fallen women with a holy and healing and forgiving hand. Highlights something of the chasm that exists between his heart and ours, does it not? Something of the chasm that exists between his heart and yours, does it not? There is a loveliness in purity, isn't there? Even in our fallen sexual state, with our depravities everywhere on display around us, the loveliness of his goodness and purity as the king still resonates, doesn't it? The thought of being able to look at another human being through those eyes, tell me that doesn't sing of goodness in your heart. Oh, that I could view others through eyes such as those. Oh, to know something of that atmosphere of soul as opposed to this monstrosity with which I'm constantly grappling with its brokenness showing up in all sorts of ways. Is that not the case? I trust that your silence is not just a post-lunch lull, but a true conviction that says, yes, this is indeed the case. We begin considering our sexual brokenness. It's hard. It's hard to consider this for lots of different reasons, but God's word addresses it. God's word addresses our fallenness in this particular regard. It doesn't shy away from it. We can't shy away from it. But we can say that even as it addresses this reality of the human experience, it does so with a loveliness of chastity. It's never grotesque or crass simply for the sake of being grotesque or crass. And so we find ourselves in the hands of the same Holy Savior who looks at us through pure eyes, who handles us with a holy touch, and who has our purification in mind as the desire to present us pure and blameless is his stated end. So let's consider this in the light of the seventh commandment. We can start with a positive thing. Everyone can take a breath for a moment. We're not going to delve right into the heart of the matter. The first point is simply marriage is a good gift. Marriage is a good gift. As the sixth commandment uniquely guards life, showing that God is the giver of life and thus is interested in safeguarding life, so the seventh commandment uniquely guards marriage. God is the giver of marriage and thus is uniquely interested in safeguarding marriage. This is the prelude to a consideration of our sexual brokenness. Marriage is a gift from God. Go any number of places to see this, but we can go to Matthew 19 since we're in Matthew's gospel. And we're not going to get to chapter 19 for six to seven years. <laughs> we can preview coming attractions. <laughs> 
Matthew 19, verses 3 to 9. And the Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Now, I don't want to get enmeshed in the, um, the difficulties of this passage. We'll come to that in due time. But for the time being, we'll just make a couple of observations. The first is that God has designed marriage. It's plain from our Lord's teachings. Marriage, the idea of one man and one woman committed, bound to each other in faithfulness and loyalty with the permanence of this life, this was not an invention of man. Jesus cites creation and creation's creator in speaking that this indeed was his design. That God's purpose in giving marriage is for man's good, as it found itself within that rehearsal of the excellencies of God on display, not just in creating, but in providing creation with all manner of good thing. Marriage is remarkably resilient, isn't it? It's stunning. It's absolutely stunning. Even pagans who have been enmeshed in darkness and don't know their right hand from their left will still come up to you and say, join us in our joy, we're getting married. It's like, that's remarkable. (laughs) This thing must be deep. (laughs) This institution has some staying power. It's almost as if it's written into the very fabric of the cosmos. We will enter into your joy with you because you've received a common grace gift of God. God has designed marriage, and he's designed it in a specific way. You hear that here as well. For one man and for one woman to forsake all others and to enter into a new state together, a state of intimacy and unity and permanence. The terms and the conditions of marriage are thus part of the definition thereof, part of God's designs. It's not as if one can take a part of it and decide to discard the rest as if marriage were this sizzler's buffet, which is disgusting. I saw billboards for Shoney's on the way into the South. I'm like, Shoney's? Anybody been to a Shoney's anyway? It's just like Sizzler. Imagine this dreadful Sizzler buffet of marriage. You're like, I like that part. I like that part. I don't want that part. I'm going to pass on that part. The Lord says, no, this isn't a buffet. Chef's choice. (laughs) I'll be providing the menu. Enjoy. I promise. I'm very good at what I do. So the design of marriage is entailing here the specifics of what God calls us to in marriage. One man, one woman, 
bound together, forsaking all others, and that as long as both shall live. But there's also a remarkable point in this as well, that it's not just marriage as an institution that God has designed, showcasing his excellencies as a designer. They're asking him about particular marriages here. Is it lawful for any particular marriage to go this or that way? And what does the Lord cite in response? He cites that it's God's design, not just that people marry in the abstract, but it's God's providence that these two marry in the particular. That's striking, isn't it? So we can see God's goodness on display in the design of marriage, but then we can see particular goodness on display in the union of two particular people. Christ sees God, the Father's activity behind both of those things. What appears to many as random, maybe even bordering on the ridiculous, in Christ's understanding of the Father is the particular providence of God, knitting these two hearts together and calling them to avail themselves of God's goodness. We can pause there and once more reflect upon the nature of our God on display in his gifts. In general, the Creation gifts of God, those gifts that are given indiscriminately to creation at large, we consistently see in them something of his goodness, something of his wisdom, something of his power, according to Romans 1. So mark the goodness of God on display in this. Even this needs reinforcement these days, because again, we're all products of our time and place, and there is no small narrative about marriage that it is an oppressive regime, that it is somehow attesting not the goodness of God, but the brutality of man specifically. This is not the vision that Scripture sets forth. Marriage per se isn't the problem. Sinners inhabiting the gift is the problem. It's very plain to see that the stability that comes from family, that even those who know not Christ can still attest to the goodness of family, the provision that such an arrangement makes, the stability that such an arrangement makes, the forum for nurture and care that such an arrangement allows, all of this has a certain self-evident goodness that comes into particular relief when you consider the contrary. It's striking to note that while marriage is not strictly necessary for the production of life, marriage does seem to be necessary if life is going to thrive. Mark that. That it's not the bare promulgation of life that the Lord lays down as a good. It's the promulgation of life within the context that he has designed for life's cultivation that attests to God's goodness. It's hard to even envision a society where the stability of marriage isn't still somewhere near the bedrock of that culture's well-being. The alternative would be chaos, would it not? I mean, it would 
really be difficult to imagine any semblance of productivity, order, harmony, peace existing were it not for this basic provision of good, of devoting ourselves to one another, devoting to the next generation, learning to care for the former generation. It's almost as if the form itself were designed not just for biological life, but for the cultivation of the life of virtue, selflessness. God's goodness is on display in the design of marriage and the calls to faithfulness and fidelity. Tap into the excellencies of that gift. We can also mark the goodness of God that we've experienced. Admittedly, many of us have hard marriages, but Even those of us whose marriages are difficult from time to time, I trust you've still tasted the excellencies of marriage. Perhaps it's not a coincidence. It is not a coincidence. Sometimes you overstate things with a negative and it doesn't work rhetorically. It is not a coincidence (laughs) that we just considered that it's not ease that leads to life. It's difficulty that leads to life. So many of us are prone to buy into that deception that, no, if, if I were really an object of God's love, my marriage would be perfect and harmonious and only ever easy all the time. Christ actually says it's actually better for you that you struggle. It's better for you to wrestle with your selfishness as you come face to face with another who is not you and yet who is you at the same time as the two become one flesh. He says that's better It's better you glimpse how wretched you really are. That's better. It's better you be forced to grapple with asking, how do I care for another? How do I serve another? How can I sacrifice my good so that the other may obtain their good? That's better. It's harder, but it's better. I trust you can see something of this particular goodness unfolding in your life. As Christ has called you in a Christian marriage in these ways. And to see in your particular marriage not happenstance, not the random falling out of sitting next to a passenger on a train or whoever it is that you met, your husband or your wife, but the particular gift of God bringing to you this person, however circuitous the route may have been. We can give thanks for God's goodness. We can give thanks for God's wisdom on display in these things. But not all of us are married. So is there a word for those of us who aren't in this? Well, we can see that marriage is still a good that we're called to pursue. We pray for our children. We pray for our marriages. We pray for family in this church. But we have to hear scripture in saying that marriage and family is not the ultimate good. Your salvation does not depend upon you finding the right spouse. Your salvation does not depend upon you having children. Now again, I trust you can feel the tension in these things, an excellent gift to be desired and earnestly sought, but as Christ comes as the true husband, as Christ comes for the satisfaction of every longing of our heart, 
Even that most excellent good of marriage and family becomes a subordinate good to the call of the Lord Jesus Christ. Such that if he keeps you from that desire, he has not withheld from you ultimate blessing because he has not withheld himself from you. And thus that season of singleness in which you may find yourself, this too is a season where his mercies and his goodnesses are adorning your life and this not in a partial measure waiting the fullness of the realization of your goodness in marriage. Can you feel the tension in those things? Can we rejoice in the excellency of the one and yet not confuse it for that ultimate blessing? And by not confusing it for that ultimate blessing, we're postured to obtain and to receive and to comport ourselves within that subordinate blessing rightly in a way that honors and glorifies Christ as the one with comprehensive and unequivocal claims upon us all. The Lord Jesus Christ says anyone who doesn't hate his husband or his wife, his wife or her husband, family, that excellent gift, hate mother, hate father, hate child, He's not calling for cruelty to be poured out there. Make no mistake. He's calling for a subordination of true good to ultimate good. Can you hear that? If you can't hear it, you're bad husbands, bad fathers, because the only way to be a good husband, a good father is to belong first and foremost to the true king. If you can't hear it, you're a bad wife. A bad mother, because the only way to be a good wife, a good mother, is to belong first and foremost to the true king. I trust you can see what's being said there. The last point we can make in the light of this is the astonishing claim that Paul makes that marriage is a mystery that gives us a true glimpse of the wonder of the relationship between Christ and his church. It's a well-known passage here that comes to us from Ephesians 5. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies, he who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. There's something about the unity, the unique unity experienced in the wonder of marriage. Two becoming one and yet still remaining distinct, not losing identity entirely in one another, but still partaking of a remarkable unity. Paul says it gives us a glimpse into the wonder of our relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a well Worn picture in scripture of the father as husband, betrothing himself by covenant to a people. 
And the horror of that story is again and again profiled that the wife that he took unto himself has shown herself to be wanton, promiscuous, unfaithful in all her ways. Read Hosea. It's one of the most striking glimpses into this reality. Israel is going after other gods. The word there is whoring after other gods. The spiritual infidelity which God's people continued to persist in in spite of him being the good husband, in spite of him betrothing himself to this people consistently resounds to his wife's shame. So when we hear that Jesus Christ is the true husband, the first thing that we're perhaps in awe of is that he is God himself. For it is God who is the husband of his people. It is God who takes to himself a bride, betrothing himself to her in faithfulness via covenant. The Lord Jesus Christ says, I am the good husband. A remarkable claim, a remarkable glimpse into who our king is. But the wonder proceeds from there. Glimpse this already of old as God instructed Hosea not to abandon his wife as she stumbled into infidelity, but to persist in faithfulness to her. We see that faithfulness play out as God never fully cast off his people. Time and time again, the prophets came. Even in the exile, the visitation of judgment was not the ultimate divorce where somehow his promises to Abraham, his promises to David fell void. Even through that, unto the time of the Lord Jesus Christ, the husband showed his great faithfulness. We sing, great is thy faithfulness. Because in many ways, this is the very history of God, the demonstration of his faithfulness and our less than faithful hearts, shall we say. So the wonder here is that Christ, as the culmination of that faithfulness, assures us not only that he keeps us in faithfulness, but that he's cleansing us to present himself a bride on that day, pure, blameless, spotless, made clean by the washing of the word, the wonderful ministry of the Holy Spirit coming over us and the baptismal waters washing over us as his word continues to go forth to put a check on your sinful proclivities to bring you back time and time again, prone to wander as you are. This is the retrievals of the good husband. The excellencies of the husband on display and that he's bound himself to a wife that is prone to wander, but he is committed to present her as pure and spotless as he in great faithfulness and self-giving love purchases her and cleanses her. And perhaps that's the most stunning thing. Husband, love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. It seems to me that the number one objection to the oppressiveness of marriage does not come from marriage per se, but from the selfish hearts that consistently ask, what do I get 
out of this and how do I obtain it? The good husband lays down his life to obtain the good of the wife. And in this, he showcases his excellencies. The rehearsal of this love, he loved her, gave himself up for her, is the bedrock of our confidence before God. It's enough to make the heart sing, to think that in your fallen estate, as a fallen woman, as it were, more wretched than Anna, more wretched than little Emily, more wretched than Lucy, that it was in that condition that he set his love upon you. And it was in that condition that he died for you, giving himself up, not for the worthy, but for the wanton, to showcase the otherworldly excellencies of the love of God. Beloved, this is your husband. This is your king. This is the one whom God has sent forth to make known who he is. Let's pray. Our great God, we do give you thanks for your great faithfulness on display. So plainly in your word and in all of your dealings with us, Lord, we pray, Father, that we would stand uh, in awe of such a plain testimony, uh, that we would hear of it and being uh, gripped by it, Lord, um, that we would continue to yield to you the praise, the trust, the obedience of which you are so worthy. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.